Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Nick at Night Show. You can reach me tonight at 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can send me an email to nick at latenightcouncil.com. Oh, boy, have we got a list of topics for you tonight. I'm telling you, it has been a crazy last week or so. Well, since the last time we were together, we have had a whole host of things come down the pike. Uh, everything from the legalizing of pot to, uh, oh, well, where do I begin? Actually, where I do want to begin, I posted something on Facebook tonight that I wrote just before the show. Let me bring it up. That's right here. And there's, to me, you know, you know how everybody always says, you know, it's the worst it's ever been. Times have never been tougher. And every generation seems to think they've got it tough. Now, last week I played a clip from the old Dragnet series with uh, Jack Friday and the guy who played Harry uh, Herm, uh, Colonel Potter in MASH, whose name I can't remember. But anyway, they, they gave a great dialogue on, you know, the, it was shot in 1968, I think, that that show was on the air during the height of the sexual revolution and the whole Woodstock era the hippie, hippie, free love, make love, not war kind of era. That's all that was going on in the States when this show was being shot. But I was, I got thinking about it. And let me just share with you some of the thoughts that I posted on Facebook. And you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong or whatever. Uh, but I think that here, here's how I sum it up. Nothing is new under the sun. Every 100 years, the world population is renewed. Each group thinks that every problem it encounters is the first time it's come up or or is the worst it's ever been. And yet, over and over again, the same challenges arise from the past to haunt man and his never-ending quest to create heaven on earth. The reality is that all of these problems that each generation faces can be boiled down to these five points. Each has intricacies unique to time, geography, and technology, but at their core, they all lead back to this. And in no particular order they are, where you should live, what you should do for a living, what you can or can't own, what leader you should follow, and number five, what religion you should belong to. Everything flows from this and the reason the, and is the reason for the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <clears throat> There's a reason that that's the reason that that old saying still reads rings true. Someday, I suppose, we'll break this cycle, but to, to borrow crudely from Aragorn of Lord of the Rings fame, it is not this day, and that is all more the pity. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you look at the different challenges we face, if you look back over history, and I'm talking about the long term, not just, you know, in the last 50 years, or the last 100 years, or 200 years, but over the course of human history, everything boils down to these five points, where you should live, Wars have been fought. Thousands of wars have been fought. A lot of times it's over geography, like where you should live. If a country – take the Romans as an example. They were famous for going in and taking over territory and throwing out the occupants or enslaving the occupants and either carting off some of the population to work for the Romans in, in, um, you know, in, in bondage and slavery. Um, that was just one example. If you come through history, you see that over and over and over again. Uh, what you should do for a living, okay, uh, that's really manifest in, in, in a whole variety of ways. People encourage. Uh, it's different than when mom and dad say, you know, you've really got the skills to be this or that. Look at communist Russia. 
they had uh, – when they took somebody – this is just one example. There are many, of course, but this is one. When a school, chi- a chi- school child got to the age where they were, became useful to society, so let's say for the sake of discussion, they hit, 12, they hit grade 12 or our, their equivalent of grade 12. They reached 18. The state would give them a set of tests and whatever they were good at, that's what they did. It didn't matter what the desire of the student was. What mattered was what the state thought they were best at. Some would be you know, soldiers in the army. Some people would be in theater arts, you know, ballet and in music. Others would be uh, factory workers. Some would be working in the agriculture area. And we all know how well that worked out, right? I mean, communism is such a raging success that every country that tries it fails miserably or hangs on by the very toenails uh, in spite of what we deem common sense. Just look at North Korea. Uh, you know, that country should have folded in on itself years ago. And the only thing keeping it going is the dictatorial, uh, tyrannical uh, nutcases that have been running the place. So you have that. What you can or can't own, okay, everything from, you know, land, the most basic of things, land. Uh, if you go back over history, again, wars have been fought over this, where who controls the land? There were um, – uh, you had serfs who would work for landlords. Uh, you know, you had um, uh, people who were the landlords. Uh, you had – in Europe, the idea of owning land was only for the very, very wealthy. Today in, in Canada, it's, it is hard to do. To own land, but it's not impossible. It's within the reach of a lot of the population. We've in, in North America, we've been really blessed with that. It's something, and to tell you the truth, it's what drove a lot of immigration in the early part of our history was the, the ability for people to get land for either free or at very small cost financially. Other than leaving everything behind they have they have ever known, you know, getting on a leaky old sailboat, taking six to eight weeks, if not more, to cross the ocean and hope they got there without dying of dysentery, falling overboard, or getting sunk in a storm. Okay, which were all common common occurrences in those days, considering the technology available at the time, they would come over because they had a chance to own their own land and do with it what they wanted to. So that that's this is this idea is relatively new. What leadership you should follow goes all the way back to the first, you know, um, to when we came out of caves or the garden or whatever, whatever we want to phrase it. There's always somebody who wants to run everything else, you know. And there's this compulsion. If you look down through history, what king, what prince, what what um, dictator, what uh, political leader, um, you know, everybody has an allegiance to. And you grow up with that or it's enforced upon you one way or the other. And these things repeat themselves through history over and over and over again. And what religion you belong to, okay, that is, is, is just as common a theme as all the others. You know, wars have been fought over that too. Christianity's gone through it. Uh, Islam never really got out of it. You've got almost every major religion in the world at one point um, was out there being fought over or doing the fighting. So these five things are kind of – and if you look at it and you take history and you overlay this on top of history, these are the five things that propel human history forward. And every hundred years or so, that memory seems to be wiped clean and we start all over again. And people think, oh, my God, it's never been this bad. And it comes at great expense because we've forgotten what got us here in the first place. We've forgotten and we've already done this and this is what happens when we do it. We don't learn from our own history. And if you don't learn from your history, you're bound to repeat it. So I just thought I'd share that with you just to kind of kick the show off.
because it's one of these little things. I'm just going, getting ready, and I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for the show tonight. And I got thinking, where where do all these troubles come from? Because when you listen to the, when you read the news, you see all the gr- grief in the world, and you know the what's going on in Aleppo, and what's going on in Europe, and what's going on here in North America, and you think, okay, obviously nobody has ever um, dealt with these before, or have they? I think one of the reasons why, especially in our age, we have a problem, not a problem, we, we think that it's never been worse. And you know what? I, th- I think there is a certain grain of truth to that, that there is a certain amount of truth in that. But in general, every, every group of people who come along, every generation, seem to think that no one understands them, no one's ever had it as bad as we have. And yet, as we go forward, our lifestyles get better. Our, our, you know, our life spans get longer. Life, generally speaking, gets better the longer we're here because of the advances in technology and so on. So I forget where I was going with that. I guess what I'm trying to say is that all these problems, no matter what they are, there's nothing new under the sun. We've already dealt with them. And the pity is we never stop to learn the lessons that history has to teach us. So I want to start the show with that. Now, there is, we do have a victory. Let me see if I can find... Where are you? I know you're in here somewhere. I'm going to go to there. We have a victory in Mississauga Center. Remember all the trouble we've had with uh, with Carlton Count and Carlton, the riding of Carlton, and uh, with Jay Tysick and Derek Duvall and, and uh, the whole um, uh, Garagamari, uh, all that stuff where Patrick Brown has been handpicking uh, candidates and deciding for themselves who's the, the upper echelon was going to decide who was going to run where. And we have a situation where uh, people got very, very upset about the way that this was being done because it defies democracy. Well, I think the heat has finally hit the boiling point up there in Queen's Park because we have a win in the riding of, uh, let's see, let me just bring the story up and I'll tell you about it. Here it is. Former Quebec politician, latest addition to Brown's 2018 ticket. Now, of course, the the PCs are going to put a spin on this, right? They're going to say, oh, well, this is just democracy in action. This just demonstrates how well you know, we're functioning and, and how, how much we respect democracy, which is a total scam. It's just the, the idea that they would even think that just blows my mind. Anyway. Progressive conservatives in Mississauga Center have nominated a lawyer, Angeli, I think it said Pacus, uh, who previously ran for elections in to, for the Quebec legislature, and they picked her to represent them in the 2018 race to Queens Park. The Mississauga Center nomination process was the latest to draw attention after Jay Tysick, a disqualified contender for the Carlton PC nomination, suggested that one of the contestants in the Mississauga race, Urs here, was a liberal supporter. Despite initial concerns about the process, the writing seems to be happy with the results. Somehow, uh, someone with a def- was, sorry, someone with a definitely right of center uh, passed is the one who won. This just demonstrates what happens when they have a fair and open nomination, and people get to pick the person they want. And you know something? He's ab- that's Jay Tysick talking. He's absolutely right. If if Patrick Brown really wanted to reflect the diversity 
of Ontario. He would simply let the people in the ridings pick for themselves who they want to ride. This woman is a Filipino. She's not a, a wasp. Okay, she she's not. So she does not fit into what um, you know what people would call mainstream Canadian. You know what a, a Canadian is supposed to look like: blue-eyed blonde, or or you know this white-skinned um, Euro Western European kind of person. Uh, obviously, she doesn't fit that mold, but she's a staunch uh, social conservative. Let me read to you a little bit more of this. In a statement, PC, in a statement, PC leader Patrick Brown congratulated Pacus on her nomination, saying she brings a wealth of experience and a unique perspective to our modern, inclusive, and pragmatic Ontario PC team, which is a load of bunk. He hates every mouthful of that sentence because he's he's demonstrated that over and over and over again. See, here's what I think happened in this particular case. He said, okay, we don't want any SOCONs because I have an agenda. I want to be progressive, and I want to get rid of any sense of conservative. I want to out-liberal the liberals. So he started making sure that people like Jay Tysick and Derek Duvall and different ones from around the, the province who were SOCONs uh, and were not ashamed to say so uh, never made the, the, the promise. Never made the um, uh, never made the grade. We're, we're, they found ways to get rid of them, so he wouldn't have to put up with views he didn't like. You know, it didn't matter what the constituency constituency wanted. He wanted uh, people who were nothing more than liberal light. Only this time, because of all the press that's been out there about this and all the heat that he's been taking, he had no choice but to stand back and let things take their own course. And when he did that, he lost. So this is a victory for everything that's been going on, for those who believe in democracy and want a party in this province to actually stand for something rather than just try to get along with people who don't really like them in the first place. How that mindset's supposed to work, I have no idea. But that's basically what it boils down to. So I can't tell you enough how ecstatic I am to to see this win. Let's hope it's the beginning of a trend. But at very least, there's going to be at least one SOCON in that, in that um, uh, organization running for the leadership, running for the PC party in Ontario when they go up against Kathleen Wynne and the Big Red Machine uh, in 2018. And I'll tell you what, I'm in no hurry to get any older, but that election can't come fast enough. Uh, you know, the, this this nonsense going on in, in Queen's Park under her regime has just got to stop. So, well done. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled to see this happen. Um, she is, uh, she's got very deep uh, soci- socially conservative values. And even Brad Trost gets in on it. Um, he's saying, if I can find the right story, hang on a second. Oh, and Pierre... Uh, our young um, boy king, Mr. Trudeau, made American news again. I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, where did it go? Uh, no, not that one. I've got the story open here somewhere. Oh, we're going to get into the legalization of pot, too. This, You know what? While I'm doing that, while I'm looking for this story, that um, here it is. Okay. The legalization of pot just blows my mind. It's so hypocritical. All right, so even Brad Trost gets it, or even Brad Trost. Brad Trost has understood this all along, and he says um, 
Uh, let me see. Uh, let's see if I can find the right spot in the article here. All right. He's talking about this whole PC party selecting candidates from on high kind of thing. And he says, conservative parties are coalitions of people who are conservative for different reasons. At least 30% of Ontarians are social conservative on a wide range of issues. That 30%, that's 30% of the population that overwhelmingly votes PC. If you tell them to stay home, not vote, or only vote, and then have their issues completely ignored, you're going to end up splitting the party. I'm from Saskatchewan. When the NDP faced the divided opposition, they ran roughshod over them. Alberta's next door to us. You never thought the NDP could win in Alberta. Have we forgotten why Federal Conservative Party was formed from the PCs and the Canadian Alliance Reform Party in the first place? Now, the, the writer of the article goes on to say, but Trost's concerns may be overblown. I don't think so, but here's the writer's point. Rick Anderson, a former senior aide to Reform Party founder Preston Manning and the president of I2 Ideas and Issues Advertising, doesn't see the Ontario PC splitting into two parties. Not today. I think the Provincial Conservative Party is pretty healthy. Oh, how little does he know. See, this is why these guys, this is why pollsters are often, certainly in the last little while, have a really lousy record of getting it right. What do you mean? It's healthy. How in God's name can you call anything healthy that Patrick Brown's been involved in when it comes to selecting who's going to run in his party and the reasons they give and the methods that they use to control that? That's not healthy. That's cancer. That's, that's, that's the kiss of death. But Brad Trust gets it. So I just I wanted to bring that up because I'm telling you that's just plain old crazy. I don't know where people get that idea. All right, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, I'll have more for you right after this. Often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? 
This message is brought to you by climatescienceinternational.org. Three four three seven zero zero four three nine zero eight four four five six two four seven six six. That's three four three seven zero zero four three nine zero and eight four four five six two four seven six six. Give me a call if you got any opinions on this. If you want to tell me I'm crazy, if you want to tell me I'm right, I don't care. Uh, the one thing you don't want to do is listen to me monologue for two hours. So by all means, pick up the phone, give me a call. I don't bite very hard, and when I, I don't bite very often either. And I'll give you enough time to explain your point, so don't be afraid. It's just you and me. Um, you can also send me an email at nick at latenightconsul.com. Uh, before I get back into, um, uh, well, I want to talk about uh, the legalization of pot, which I think is hypocritical beyond, uh, beyond the pale, and I have my reasons for saying that. But I also want to share with you this This I like. I got this, I believe it was one of my, uh, I have a young son by the name of Jordan who, um, young, he's 22, 23, a lot smarter than I am. Anyway, he, uh, he likes to, to go to the news site Reddit, and he found a quote on there that he shared on his Facebook wall, which I promptly stole and uh, stuck it on my Facebook wall because it's the, the def- definition of socialism. And I think it's <laughs> it really nails it. Social, socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialist concludes that we object to it being done at all. We disapprove of state education. Then the socialist says that we are opposed to any education. We object to a state religion. Then all socialists say we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality. Then they say we're against. Then we, they say we are against equality, and so on and so on. It's as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat because we do not want the state to raise grain. And that was said by Frederick Frederick Baptiste uh, in a book called The Law, eighteen fifty. Boy, did he ever nail that! Because you know what? If you stop and think about that, that's exactly right. Like when somebody says, you know, okay, ask yourself this question. I'm not putting down firefighters when I say this. I think they're heroes, and I think these guys do the very best job they, you know, with the equipment they're given. But why is it they're called to a car accident if there's no fire? Well, because they carry the jaws of life. Okay, but why don't we teach the paramedics to use the jaws of life? Because they're going to get called to a car accident if there's any kind of injury at all. 
Just, just, I'm just, so in other words, by, excuse me. Now, like I said, I'm not trashing fire, firefighters, but, but just by raising the question, as an example, somebody said, well, you must be against firefighters, or you must be against using, ju-. no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But you see how they take it and they twist it so that no matter what you do, you're against it if you don't think the state should be doing it. That's not the same thing at all. And it just it, – I don't know if I've ever heard it explained more fully uh, as well. Now, I do like um, – that's not really a definition of socialism anyway. That was the difference between socialism and conservatism. I'm thinking of Winston Churchill saying if you're not a socialist when you're young, you haven't got a heart. And if you're still a socialist when you're older, you haven't got a head. Um, I think what he means by that is just that conservatism is socialism that's matured and grown up and understands how the world works, is still compassionate, but it is tempered with reality. And I, if you want to really nail it down, I think that's, a, that's the difference between the two. That's what one leads to the other if you, let your, if, you let, um, if you let enough time pass and are mature enough to be able to understand how the world works instead of, instead of wanting it to listen the way you think it should work. Okay, now, the legalization of pot. Okay, so the government has has this recommend series of recommendations. One of one of which is we're going to set the legal age at eighteen, uh, or provinces can set it or whatever. They're going to marry it to the drinking age. Okay, so some places eighteen, some places nineteen, whatever it is. Who cares? As a friend of mine t- pointed out one time, he said, "Look, this isn't going to work. We have uh, legal drugs all over the place. You go to a pharmacist, you can get." All kinds of different drugs with a doctor's prescription, right? You can get um, uh, morphine. You can get uh, a lot of opiate-based drugs uh, for pain relief and so on and so on and so on. Some some um, Oxycontin and all kinds of different things uh, that are available, but they're also widely available on the black market. There is an illegal trade in legal drugs. So how does making something legal or illegal make it any safer? It's not about whether or not um, you know, this this should be you know, by setting a, a magical, drawing a magical line on a calendar somewhere. Says, look, kid, when you get over eighteen, now you can smoke pot, but don't you dare do it before that. <laughs> hey, look, we were all kids at one point. I mean, I tried pot when I was in high school, just like half a billion other people did. I wasn't eighteen. As a matter of fact, I think I tried it before I was sixteen. So the point I'm making is, if a kid wants pot, he'll get it. And setting an age. An arbitrary age on something like that is just ridiculous. And there was a caller into um, a talk show I was listening to on my way in, and the caller really nailed it. He said, this isn't about saving the kids or keeping them safe. You know, it's funny that the liberals always seem to do this, the progressives. They wrap it up. They wrap whatever nefarious plan they have. Stuffed. uh, They they take this... um, proposition that most people would object to under any other packaging and they stuff it around safety for kids somehow this is going to make them safer that's you know those those pictures on on tobacco on on uh, cigarettes you know the the ugly ones with the rotted teeth and all that that was put there so that to dissuade kids from smoking well maybe it works maybe it doesn't i don't know but if smoking is that bad why don't they ban it Oh, I forgot. They're addicted to tobacco just like the guys who smoke and can't quit. Only they're addicted to the tax money that comes from it, which kind of gets to where I'm going. Um, 
the point is that this is all about it's not about safety for the kids at all it's about revenue it's about this government using new revenue tools to quote Kathleen Wynne because they've blown the budget and now they're looking for money so they legalize something that for the most part let's face it there are worse things you can do than smoke marijuana I don't do it haven't done it for years, have no interest in doing it, and don't know why anyone would want to. But I'm also realistic enough to know that's not going to stop anybody. If they want to smoke pot, they're going to smoke pot. I just don't like the idea. I think the stuff stinks. I think you're you're. It, it's different than having a glass of wine. There's a very clear distinction between alcohol and uh, marijuana. Yes, you can abuse alcohol. Yes, millions of people do. Yes, drinking and driving is a problem. But even more millions sit down, have a glass of meal with their have a glass of meal with their wine. Yeah, they don't abuse alcohol. Have a glass of alcohol with their like a glass of wine with a meal. They'll have a glass, maybe two. Because as you all know, if you take a if you take white wine as an example, it cleans it clears your palate so that the next bite of food tastes as delicious as the first one does. It's a way of enjoying your food even more. It enhances the meal. Marijuana just clouds your head. It just makes you get, you know, dry mouth and fuzzy eyeballed and you get the munchies, right? And everything's, you you burst into a giggle fest. All right, well, that's how you want to waste your time. Go ahead. Apparently it's legal now, or at least they're going to make it legal. And I just, my attitude has always been, if somebody has their head in a cloud of pot smoke, they got bigger trouble than whether or not their head's in a cloud of pot smoke because they're hiding from something. What it is, I don't know. But obviously there's something in their life that causes them to reach for this narcotic. And it is. It's a drug that alters your perception of reality from the very first moment you try it, which is different than alcohol. That's one of the big differences that people is lost on. Now, the hypocrisy comes from this. On one hand, there's been a major war going on against people who smoke. And smoking's terrible. And we have made it socially unacceptable. We won't even let World War II veterans or Korean War veterans smoke in retirement homes, even though they certainly have earned that right if they want to. What right have we got to tell a guy who went, went ashore Dieppe or went ashore at D-Day, or was on the 38th parallel in Korea, that he can't have a cigarette after what he did for his country. That's how we reward them in their old age, is to take away one of the few joys in life left to them. Well, apparently in Canada, that seems to be the case. So the hypocrisy is that on the one hand, you've got people trying to crush out tobacco, and yet on the other hand, elevate the star status, smoking marijuana. Now, I'm sorry, I'm no doctor, but it seems to me that if you take a plant, you roll it up and you dry it, and you light it on fire, and then you take the container it's in, and you inhale the smoke, that's going to have negative effects on your health. That's what they've been telling us for years about tobacco, and tobacco doesn't have THC in it. And you don't hold it in your lungs, you just inhale, exhale. How can anybody say that we got to crush out tobacco 
but pot, pot smoking's okay. Isn't it supposed? Isn't it one just as bad as the other for your health? Now, I somebody told me one time. He says, well, "Yeah, but it's it's not. The difference is you don't have two packs of of of, um, of um, joints a day. Like some people smoke a pack and a half, two packs of cigarettes a day. That may be true." But are you going to tell me that one cigarette is equal to one joint when it comes to the tar and the nicotine and the carbon monoxide? Is that what you're going to tell me? Don't forget how you smoke it. So it's the hypocrisy that gets me. That part I just un- don't understand um, what we're what they're doing and when it comes to this. Unless you take the, that one particular caller to the show uh, that I was listening to, I think they nailed it. It's all about the money. What these guys say is always about the money. Now, speaking about the money, they have had a um, campaign going on, and I'm talking about the liberals now, uh, trying to raise a million dollars by December 15th. And how do I know this? Because every two days, literally every two days, I got an email in my inbox. Now, I'd, I could unsus- unsubscribe, but it's fun to watch. Okay, I could say, Man, stop sending me this nonsense. Because it is. It's absolute nonsense. But they want to raise half a million dollars, not half a million, a million dollars by the 15th. As of today, the one I saw today, they're only at $436,000 and only about 4,500 Canadians across the country out of a country of 36 million people. 36 million. Now, okay, kids aren't going to donate. So let's cut that number in half to about, what's that, 12, about 14, 14 and a half million I'm no good at math. Let's say 15. No, it would be more than that. 15, 16 million would be 32 million. So about 18. Yeah, it's 18. So about 18 million people would be, you know, in that bracket. So out of 18 million people, you have 4,500 to donate. Just And mind you, some of them are going to be pretty hefty donations. So the average donation would be smaller yet because, you know, one big donation is with, well, you know, you know how to figure out averages. So they'll run around claiming they did so well and that so they're so proud, but you know that they hit forty percent of their mark. Well, somebody who's a little more pragmatic would say, "No, you failed the class because forty percent has never been a pass. This is a failure. You failed by sixty percent, but they won't look at it that way. They don't understand it. That's not how they go about and look things. To be fair, I don't know of any political party, given its stripe, that would say. Okay, guys, we blew it. They're going to try to make put the best possible spin on it they can. I just thought it was funny that they would pick, give themselves like 30 days to raise a million bucks and then come that woefully short. Anyway, that's the liberals for you. All right, we shall take a short break. When we get back, we'll have more right after this.
Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning. Comes right to your driveway makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. All right, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And you can send me an email at nick at latenightcouncil.com. Okay, you've heard the phrase fake news. It's been in the news a lot. People who make up stuff and just run with it. Well, one of my idols in the talk show industry man I learned a tremendous amount from about how to run a talk show long before I ever knew I was ever going to have one, uh, was Rush Limbaugh. Now, I know a lot of people have very strong opinions about Rush, and I just love him. I think he's uh, he's great. He's a master at his trade, and he really is the benchmark. Uh, he's the, the most successful talk show in, our, if not the world, then certainly in North America. And last time I looked, he had about 650 radio stations in his syndicated network. He reaches 20 million people a week. So the man knows what he's doing, whether you like him or not. And he put together a montage of um, what he calls fake news. So this is Rush Limbaugh. I'm going to play you about a clip. Uh, The clip is about a minute and a half long. And, well, I'll let Rush do the talking. We put together a little montage of Hillary Clinton as a purveyor of fake news herself. The great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband. We came out of the White House not only dead broke but in debt. I did not know that Vince had any of the documents related to our personal business in his office until after his death. This video is disgusting and reprehensible. It appears to have a deeply cynical purpose to denigrate a great religion and to provoke rage. I thought using one device would be simpler. 1975. I decided that I was very interested in having some experience and serving in some capacity in the military. And he finally said to me, he said, you're too old. You can't see. 
And you're a woman. I remember landing under sniper fire. And to my husband. I mean, you know, he woke me up Wednesday morning and said, you're not going to believe this, but... And I said, what is this? That's just a brief montage of the fake news that Hillary Clinton has been responsible for her. So every one of those is a lie. Every one of those little montage ingredients is fake news. Not to mention the story she tells about being named after the mountaineer, Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to climb Mount Everest. The only problem with that is that when she was born, nobody ever heard of him. He didn't climb Mount Everest for six years after she was born. Yeah, that's Rush. Hang on, let me mute that mic. There we go. That's right. <laughs> you know what? That is classic. That is just unbelievable. Can you imagine having the audacity to think that no one would look or no one would check and saying that you're named after a famous mountain climber? <laughs> took So unless maybe, – maybe here's the explanation. <laughs> In her family, they waited till kids were seven before they named them. <laughs> oh, my God. This kind of stuff. You know, it's what makes my job so much fun. You can't believe. I mean, here you are. One of the most recognizable faces on the planet with one of the most important jobs. She was Secretary of State uh, under uh, Obama, of course, and was responsible uh, for what happened at Benghazi. I won't bore you with all those gory details. You can look it up for yourselves. But the bottom line is, she, the arrogance comes from, or the way, the arrogance that's built into this is that she says stuff as if no one will ever go, really? And then go check it out for themselves. Like no one's ever going to say, hmm, I don't know about that, and do a little fact-checking. Now, if she just stuck to the truth, it wouldn't matter because after a while, people, every time they check, said, yeah, that's right. She would. Do, it's called developing credibility. But she's done it so often, you know, been caught in a lie. She just – and then she accuses this vast right-wing conspiracy. I love it. I just absolutely love it. And he's just brilliant. Now, I'm gonna, I just wanted to mention that because there's all this, uh, you know, this organization's fake news and CBC's fake news. Well, that's pretty much true. Uh, well, not completely fake. They just have a very interesting take on on news. So when they start talking about fake news and the people saying, look, this is all fake news. This is Well, there's one of the greatest purveyors of it out there is uh, Madam Hillary Rodham Clinton. She doesn't have, uh, in my mind anyway, very much, credibil- very much credibility. And it's unfortunate because, you know, remember that old, the, uh, that old saying about, oh, the tangled web we weave? I wonder if she even knows she's a spider. She might be better off because spiders know which which web uh, strands are sticky and which ones aren't can navigate the web without getting caught. Obviously, she's a fly because she seems to get caught up in it pretty much all the time. Now, I want to ask you a question. Would it not make sense for Canada, under the Liberals, they, um, they treat the military very much like a shelf ornament. When they need it, they get it down, they dust it off, they use it. And they put it back, but they never give it any thought in between. They certainly don't maintain it very well. 
And I really am worried about the Canadian military uh, under present management. And to be fair, the, 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 the Conservatives uh, talked a good game, but we still have some major issues that never got solved that should have gotten solved under Mr. Harper's watch. So I'm not completely exonerating them. But let's face it, the Liberals have been in power more than Conservatives, and this is an ongoing problem. But you would think with a country that um, is so, you know, uh, anti-military, anti-war, like, you know, um, doesn't want to take our CF-18s out and show, them how, show the rest of the world how big they are. Remember that comment? How infantile and childish was that? You know, doesn't want to have much to do with our military. Doesn't want to use it the way it's designed. He let Canadians die. Uh, well, and I'm talking about Trudeau now. Uh, let Canadians die who were held hostage when they at least stood a theoretical chance of being rescued by either uh, CSOR, which is uh, an acronym for the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, or JTF2, our two elite units in the country, designed, trained, and and uh, deployed specifically for situations very much like this where you have Canadians in in mortal danger and these guys are the cavalry and come riding over the hill to the rescue uh, to pluck them from the teeth of death, right? That's what they're for. This is what these guys are trained for. Never even considered using them. And now he has the gall. I saw it in in the news today or yesterday that the death of those Canadians haunts him. Yeah, I'm sure he loses a lot of sleep. I wonder if he could mention their names. I wonder if he even remembers who they were or where they came from. So I don't really see much. Anyway, all this to lead up to this. Accordingly, according to the Globe and Mail, Canada will not follow the U.S. in restricting some arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Now, we all know how gentle, kind, and loving a society the Saudi, the Saudi kingdom is. I mean, after all, they only have, I don't know, uh, a couple of beheadings a week in that kingdom by the sword. I mean, they have a square in, in Riyadh and um, you can drive by and there's some poor guy on his knees with a blindfold on about to get about a foot shorter. And it's a relatively reg- regular occurrence. They're not exactly what we would call a modern Western secular society that cares about justice and uh, did away with a death penalty. No, they inflict it on a regular basis. And this kingdom is not exactly what you would call um, has the greatest human rights record. Now, they're not as bad as North Korea or, or, or Iran, but that's, a, that's just shades of gray. So Canada is selling them $15 billion worth of arms, um, arms and, and equipment, and Stefan Dion has no interest in putting a stop to that. Now, granted, I, I've always believed that there is a place for arms manufacturing, even within Canada that countries have a right to purchase the best equipment they can afford so that their men and women at arms are are as safe as possible and effective as possible on the battlefield. That is a very legitimate use of taxpayer money, and I don't have a problem with it. It's no different for us than it would be for the United States or Israel or you name the country, Britain, France, Holland, you name it. doesn't matter. But if you're going to sell them to Saudi Arabia, and Stefan Dion goes on in the article... Let me share a little bit of it with you so you know what I'm talking about. 
Canada will not follow the United States in restricting arms sales to Saudi Arabia, such as a $15 billion Canadian combat vehicle deal, even though Barack Obama's administration has just curbed some weapons exports to the Mideast Kingdom because of the number of civilians the Saudis are killing during strikes in Yemen. Now, look, I first of all, I don't believe that there's, there's a lot more to, to Obama and why he does things than his care and compassion over innocent civilian deaths. I don't believe that. But the point is, the, for whatever reason, the Americans are curbing their weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. And ostensibly, at least, according to the article, it's because they're killing too many civilians when they go on military operations. When asked if Canada would follow the U.S., Mr. Dion, Mr. Dion would say only that he is confident Canada can monitor its arms exports for misuse. Really? Okay, so we send them some LAVs, Right. LAV3s or whatever whatever the current batch is. 15 billion and I'm not I'm not saying that look for the people in London at, at General Motors who make these things that's a you know that's I'm not saying that you should never sell these things. But if you're going to sell them to Saudi Arabia, you know, if you're going to worry about the morality of what people do with these things afterwards like this government because it's so caring and so compassionate and loves everybody and oh we just can't get enough Canada you know, Joe Biden, isn't that right? Uh, Canada needs to be, uh, Justin Trudeau needs to be the, what, how, what phrase did he use? Uh, guide the world down the road of something. And my response is the kid's not even old enough to drive. So if, if that's going to be your mindset, then how can you do this? How can you go and, and sell weapons to a, a bloody regime like Saudi Arabia? That has little to no respect for human life. I just have never understood that. So anyway, and he says he's gonna, he has the ability to track Saudi, what they're going to do with it, what they're, what they're doing if they're misusing. Okay, so even if, they, even if he did, even if he did, let's, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that Canada suddenly has this magical ability to track those weapons. And for argument's sake, let's call them because they're military um, ex- um, uh, military armored vehicles. So we'll call them LAVs, which is what the infantry used in Afghanistan. You know, the six-wheeled buggies with a cannon on top. Very effective. Everybody, the, the soldiers just loved them. They were very, very effective in firefights, that kind of stuff. So it's a good piece of kit. I'm not denying that. But what would he do about it? Even if the Saudi kingdom used it on its own people, what could Canada do? Are we going to send in uh, the parachute? Oh, we don't have the battalion anymore. Are we going to send a JT? Well, if we didn't send him in for a couple of Canadians who are going to be beheaded. We're certainly not going to send him into Saudi Arabia, so that's not it. Are we going to send the Navy lo- Navy lob in? Oh, wait a minute. We've got a problem there, too. We don't have a supply ship to carry the fuel and ammunition <coughs> overseas. Oh, I know. We're going to send in our, our F-18s and show them how big they... Well, we can't. We pulled them out of there, too. So we don't really have many options, do we? So in other words, he's blowing smoke. There's nothing, even if they could track it. Oh, well, we won't sell you any more because you're nasty. So what? Saudi shrugs his kingdom and go, shrugs his shoulders and goes to the Czech Republic and buys the ones they want from over there. They just, that's not going to slow them down at all. Anyway, the decision reflects deeply... 
reflects deep frustration with Mr. Obama's government over Saudi Arabia's practices in the Yemen's 20-month-old war, which has killed more than 10,000 people and sparked a humanitarian crisis, including chronic food shortages in the poorest country in the Middle East. Okay, so the hypocrisy and the total lack of understanding of world affairs continues with this government, and it's enough to make one weep. Now, there is a clip I have, and this is... Uh, let's see. Uh, Denzel Washington uh, is talking to the press, and he kind of reads in the right act in a very polite and gentle way. They're asking him some questions, and he gives them a very surprising answer. Listen to this. Oh yeah, what they say? I was running for president. No, no, no I voted. No, what they say? I switched. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? That's a great question. What is the long-term effect of too much information? One of the effects is the need to be first, not even to be true anymore. So what a responsibility you all have to be to tell the truth, not just to be first, but to tell the truth. We live in a society now where it's just first. Who cares? Get it out there. We don't care who it hurts. We don't care who we destroy. We don't care if it's true. Just say it. Sell it. Anything you practice, you'll get good at, including BS. (laughs) But you heard me. Does that make sense? And that was Denzel Washington. Anything you practice, you'll get good at. Even BS. And you know what? In his own, and I have always liked Denzel Washington. I think he's a great actor. I've loved him in everything he's done. I think he's just one of my favorite actors. And he just nailed him just with a velvet fist right between the eyes. When they said, if, when he, he says, if you don't read a paper, you're uninformed. If you do, you're misinformed. They said, well, what do you do? Well, that's a good question. What do you do? And he pointed out their responsibility to tell the truth, not just rush to press. And I think he, in a very gentle way, he slapped them upside the head something hard. And I don't think they realized at the time, what, what's the reporter going to say to that? So well done, Mr. Washington. Um, I really hope he comes out with a new movie soon because I watched him. My, I think my favorite by him is Glory, the story of the Black Regiment from Massachusetts, I think, during the Civil War and the trials and tribulations they went through. And, you know, um, that whole scenario, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's got Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington and a couple of other really big-name actors in it. And it's well worth watching if you like that kind of movie. I know I certainly do. And it was um, he just has a way about uh, putting that out there that uh, they can't argue with. So I was very, very um, pleased, if I can put it that way, about uh, the way that he handled it. Because you know something? When you're given that kind of a platform and somebody gives you that opportunity, the way that they give it to him without even realizing it, you got to jump on it. You got to be able. You got to be a man and stand up. And he did things. And he just he just nailed them. So well done, Mr. Washington. Now, I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. They are putting a woman on the um, ten dollar bill. And it's a woman from Nova Scotia, who back I believe it was in the nineteen forties. There was a he went to a theater to watch a movie. And I think to get in was like a nickel or something like that. 
And what happened was she wouldn't leave the theater or she wouldn't go sit upstairs in the balcony where the other colored people had to sit. And she refused. Well, that's great. And that's who they're going to put on the $10 bill. But there's a problem. And that problem is that nobody's ever heard of this woman. As a matter of fact, I'm just looking for the story now. I thought I had it brought up, and I guess I don't. Let me, I'll look for it here. Because uh, there's a great uh, audio clip that goes with it. And I think what I'll do is I'll take a break, because it's about top of the hour. I'll dig this up, and I'll play it for you and let the hostess of the show, of the clip, uh, tell you about it. Because it's more liberal symbolism over substance with unintended consequences and it really is something you should think about because again once again it's just more this absolute uh, fuzzy feel-good liberalism that has no thought behind it and is nothing okay here it is i'll bring it i've got it now so i'll take a break and when i come back i'll play you that clip and boy i'll tell you (sighs) it's more of the same nonsense played out again in a different theater and i've just like you, you know, it gets frustrating to listen to, but as Denzel put it, if you don't read a paper, you're not informed. But if you listen to a talk show, you're well informed. So you stay there, listen to this, and when we get back, we'll have more. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. All right, 
Late Night Count, nick at latenightcouncil.com is the email address. Now, as I mentioned before, the Liberals are um, putting a woman, the first woman who's not our queen. You know, first of all, why why does it matter? Why does it matter? If you were going to put a woman on a $10 bill, first of all, why why this one? I don't get it. But what you're doing is you're bumping some very important people in our history and uh, off bigger bills because you move everybody up a notch and before long you start bumping people off. And the people that are, get bumped, that are getting off these larger denominations are very significant in our history and deserve to be on the ten, on the bills more than this woman does. Anyway, this is Goldie... Oh, Goldie... Not Goldie Hawn. Darn it. I forget her name now. Um, anyway, she's with the Rebel. Uh, and here it is. This is, it runs about five minutes long, so bear with me, but I think what she has to say is worth listening to. A woman no one has ever heard of is going to be on Canada's new $10 bill because apparently her royal majesty doesn't count as a woman, plus it is the current year. So the Trudeau government has chosen Viola Desmond to be featured on the new money note, while her illustrious accomplishments can be boiled down to about a single sentence. In 1946, Desmond defied a Nova Scotian movie theater's segregation policy by refusing to sit in the balcony designated exclusively for blacks. Instead, she sat in the whites-only section on the main floor before being arrested and charged. Now, the selection of Desmond might strike the astute viewer as sort of ironic, since it wasn't so long ago that Canada's self-styled feminist prime minister spoke at a segregated Muslim mosque, where the balcony was designated exclusively not for blacks, but women who are barred from the men-only main floor. We are a place that has figured out that diversity can be a source of strength, not just a source of weakness. And as I look at this beautiful room with the sisters upstairs. Yes, diversity is our strength, and that's what makes Viola Desmond the perfect pick to replace Canada's first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, on the $10 note. Because in case you didn't notice, Viola Desmond is black and she's a woman, which basically makes her an automatic winner of the oppression Olympics. And that is, of course, what this liberal make work project is really about, virtue signaling reparations for oppression. That's why other contenders like Elizabeth McGill, Canada's first female engineer, didn't make the cut. She was white and therefore less oppressed and was hence disqualified. Now, the Canadian government would have you believe their pick was Canada's Rosa Parks, but the truth is she wasn't really a prominent figure in the civil rights movement and her court case didn't change legal precedents surrounding racial discrimination in Canadian law. Viola Desmond didn't so much as challenge her conviction. She lost her case, paid a fine, moved to Montreal, and then started a business in New York. That said, I'm less concerned with Viola Desmond being on our bills than I am about who she will bump from our money. According to the Bank of Canada's website, Canada's first PM is going to be promoted to a banknote of higher value, which is cool. And the same will happen to Sir Wilfrid Laurier when his image is replaced by, uh, I don't know, some trans rights activist on the $5 bill sometime down the road. But here's where things get a little hairy. Since Laurier and McDonald are getting bumped up, the guys already on the bigger bills are getting bumped right off. According to the Bank of Canada, former Prime Ministers William Lyon Mackenzie King and Sir Robert Borden will no longer be portrayed on a banknote. 
Unbelievable. Justin Trudeau's liberal government is erasing Canada's two wartime prime ministers from the banknote because uh, tokenism? Sir Robert Borden transformed Canada's government to a wartime administration during the First World War. He transformed the British Empire into a partnership of equal states. He convinced the world that Canada had indeed become a nation on the battlefields of Europe. And Mackenzie King, apart from being the longest serving prime minister in Canadian history, King led Canada from a colony with responsible government to an autonomous nation within the British Empire. Both these great men who, yes, were were white and gender binary, are national heroes. And as someone who has a degree in Canadian history, let me tell you, it is not racist. And it is not sexist to say both these men deserve more to be on Canada's money than someone who was barely a footnote in our country's history. And one more thing, this whole put a honey on our money campaign has been one based on a lie. Say we set aside Her Royal Majesty for a second. Is there really a lack of the Y chromosome on our money bills? Well, our $50 bill has not one, but five women on the back, better known as the famous five. Meantime, our $100 note commemorates medical innovation and the discovery of insulin. And so what if it was a Canadian male, Frederick Banting, who was behind the research? We put a female scientist on our banknote. As for the smaller notes, our $10 bill, yeah, the one that Viola Desmond will soon be featured on, that bill honors our peacekeeping forces and our Ottawa's war memorial, and it depicts a Blue Beret female soldier. As far as I can tell, when you add up all of our dollar bills and monetary coins, it is only the $5 note that is scandalously without any variation which depicts a female. And frankly, who gives a damn? As a woman, I don't require visual reminders that other women did stuff in order to go on and do great things with my own life. And frankly, the suggestion of as much actually infantilizes the lot of us. Here's a tip for the liberal government. Stop trying to massage our historical record. Put the gendered lenses down and pocket that race card. If you really give a damn about the status of women, How about you focus on actual policies that can positively affect their lives, as opposed to symbolic overtures that serve none of us at all? For the Rebel.media, I'm Faith Goldie. Yeah, she uh, pretty much summed it up. That's, um, (laughs) you know, the games that this this government plays, I, I think you can kind of boil it all down to Let's keep them busy looking over here so they're not paying attention to the other stuff over there. You know, things like the massive debt we're creating and the deficits that are three and four times larger than what we promised when we said we'd have moderate and modest debts here and there, you know, that or deficits, I should say. Let's hope they don't pay attention to that. Let's hope they don't pay attention to the mockery that's being heaped upon Canada from around the world, even if we're too dumb to realize it. With this whole Castro thing, I saw a poll tonight said most Canadians are not embarrassed by this. Are you out of your mind? Anybody with a brain who knows anything about communism and Cuba and Castro would be embarrassed by anyone speaking on their behalf. Because when the prime minister gets up at a public event in on foreign soil and speaks, he's speaking for you. He's our prime minister, whether we like it or not. He fills that chair. Now, I don't like it. I certainly think he's not qualified to be there, but that doesn't change the fact that he is. 
So he goes out and he speaks for all of us, a single nation, with one voice. Isn't that a shame? Just that thought just makes me shudder. But anyway, the the point is that here we have this guy who isn't fit to lead a one man parade, uh, speaking out about the death of a dictator, and half of the population doesn't understand why it's an embarrassment. I do. I get it completely. But that's according to the, now the poll was in the Toronto Star, so you got to take that with a grain of salt. I get it. But that's you know. I think one prime minister once said polls were dogs anyway. But um, they just don't get how people could suddenly just, oh, well, uh, so what? So, we, you know, what? I think part of it is that people have forgotten how truly evil communism really is. Because if you did remember, you would never say that it's, um, it's, it's nothing to be taken lightly. Uh, or, you know, it's no big deal. Here's some of that scorn that I was talking about being heaped on us from international circles. This is out of the United States. Uh, Liberal Liberal Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told the nation's House of Commons today, oh, this is about fundraising. Oh, yeah, this is on top of um, uh, the whole Cuban thing. So you got the Cuban thing in the background. Now you've got Justin Trudeau meeting with those Chinese billionaires saying he's fighting for the middle class. Now, look. I'm not the brightest candle in the chandelier. And I know every party has to raise money. Politics and money go hand in hand. You can't do you can't sharpen a pencil where it doesn't cost you some kind of money somewhere in the world of politics. So I get that. But there are certain rules and regulations. Even Trudeau recognized that and wrote them down and gave them to his ministers. These were his Ten Commandments of Thou Shalt Nots. And he's breaking them with amazing regularity in his own case. So this article that I'm going to share with you comes to us from the United States. I believe it's from, um, uh, let's see, let's see. That's uh, a, Rebart is the, the website. And he goes on, excuse me. So it's an opinion piece, but I think it's a valid one. Um, he's talk- So again, he's talking about this uh, cash for access scandal that's rocking the Liberal government right now. Liberal Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told the nation's House of Commons Tuesday that he has attended lavish fundraisers for his family's foundation to create economic growth for the middle class. Can- Before I go on, can somebody please explain to me 373-700-4390 or 844-562-4766. Give me a call and explain to me how creating, uh, how when he goes to a fundraiser for his family's foundation, which is supposed to be in a blind trust, by the way, which he is supposed to have nothing to do with. It's like when when, uh, Trump becomes president, his companies all go into a blind trust and he has no influence on how they're, they're run or operated. Anybody who is in the public service has to do that. They just put everything in a blind trust so they don't know what's going on. They have no contact with it. They cannot influence what it does on a day-to-day basis, and they stay at arm's length until they're finished in public office. Then if they want to, they can step back into it. So he was supposed to have done that. So how can he go to a fundraiser for his family's foundation? First of all, doesn't that violate some kind of ethical code, if not the law? And then he says to create economic growth for the middle class, shouldn't he more accurately say economic growth for my foundation so that I've got more money when I get out of office than when I went in? 
Wouldn't that at least be honest? Anyway, his defense of his participation in fundraisers thrown by Pierre Trudeau Foundation, which he renounced his official position in upon becoming the leader of the Liberal Party, follows an admission that that he allowed attendees to lobby him at these fundraisers as clear as a clear violation of Liberal Party bylaws. The masticizing cash for access scandal follows a calamitous month for Trudeau for the Trudeau Liberals, in which the party, in which partly triggered by Trudeau's effusive praise for dictator Fidel Castro, uh, public approval of the Liberal Party has dropped by nine percentage points. They're now tied with the federal uh, conservatives, who don't even have a full-time leader yet. They're both they're both down around forty-two points right now. Anyway, it goes on, but so the world is not done laughing at Canada in general and Trudeau in particular. So how are we supposed to be taken seriously? How are people out there supposed to say, uh, you know, when, we're, when we walk on the world stage, well, let's listen to what these guys have to say because this is Canada. They have our attention. And then they giggle and smirk behind their hands and whisper in each other's ear about, oh, yeah, did you hear what he said last week? It's a joke. It is an absolute joke. Hmm. All right. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back right after this with more. hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org.
We've had a dose of common sense this week. This is good news. This is really good news. Now, there are those who may say, yeah, but it's too late. Well, better late than never. Uh, I don't know if you know who Geert Wilders is, but he's the Dutch politician who made the movie called Fitna. It's 11 minutes long, and it uh, tells the story of Islam. And he got into a a whirlwind of trouble over it. He was on trial for it. It seemed like to go on forever. Um, for insulting Islam, and didn't he just told the truth about about the religion and got into huge trouble? Well, he was convicted of uh, discrimination, according of discrimination. Uh, well, let me share with you some of the story, and you'll get what I'm talking about. This comes out of the Hague. The party of populist anti-Islam Dutch MP Geert Wilders has risen strongly in the polls since the lawmaker was tried and convicted of discrimination, according to a survey published Sunday. If legislative elections were due, which are due next March were held this week, Wilders' Freedom Party would pick up 36 out of 150 seats in the lower house of parliament, making it the big, biggest politi- single political group. Obviously, this is a coalition-style government over there, and I'm sure that works really well for them. Mm-hmm. Before the trial began on October 31st, uh, Gilder's party was credited with 27 seats during the trial, but before his conviction on Friday, it's estimated its share rose to 34 seats. It currently has 12 lawmakers. The new poll data comes from a weekly monitoring by the Morris de Hond Institute. It found that Prime Minister Mark Rutt's Liberals would play second with 23 seats against 40 today, and his junior coalition parties, the Labour Party, would gain 10 compared with 35. Wilders was found guilty of discrimination against Moroccans, but acquitted of hate speech over remarks he made at an election rally back in March of 2014. He had asked supporters whether they wanted fewer or more Moroccans in your city and in the Netherlands, and when the crowd shouted back, fewer, fewer, a smiling Wilders answered, we're going to have to organize that. The 53-year-old Wilders largely boycotted the trial, which he denounced as a political attempt to gag him. The judges were strongly critical of Wilder's inflammatory remarks at the rally, but they decided not to impose any sentence or fine. Now, why do I say this is common sense? Because, first of all, the Dutch, the Dutch legal system is afraid of this guy. Otherwise, why, didn't they, why did they give him just... Uh, they, sent him, they found him guilty, but they didn't impose any penalty. No fine, no jail. And since then, his popularity within Holland has jumped tremendously. Now, remember, Holland's not a big place. It's, it's about the size of Essex and Kent County. Uh, about half of the, like, if you know where Point Pelee is, if you go from Chatham to Windsor, it's a, I, I may be wrong, but it, it's not, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little country. I do know that Essex County puts out more, about the same equality, um, no, I'm going to take that back. I was going to say it puts out more agricultural product than all of Holland. I'm not sure that's true. But anyway, the point is, it's a tiny little place. And it's, they've had real problems with uh, 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 runaway immigration uh, in this open borders concept within Europe. That has just fallen flat on its face. And part of the, re- the other reason why this is uh, good news is because we're beginning to see cracks in fortress Europe. First it was Britain, then it was Italy, even France. Even socialist France is beginning to turn to the right. 
and to begin to say, wait a minute, we can't continue like this. We cannot allow just anybody to walk in here, go on welfare, and uh, stick their nose in the government trough and just keep feeding on it as if nothing's wrong, as if uh, you know we can just keep this up forever. The truth is they're really beginning to see the light over there, and the average Dutch citizen has seen it lots longer. Why is it? Why, why, why is it that when it's a bad idea, the governments are the first ones on board, and when it's a good idea, they're the last one to jump on the train? Can somebody explain that to me? 373-700-4390. Tell me why. You know, it, it's funny. Politicians, we think of as leaders. And yet, the reality is, with a few rare exceptions, they're nothing more than a bunch of followers. If you get a trend going in society, they will resist it until it sweeps them up and carries them along. And then they'll run to the front of the pack as if they were there from day one. And you see it all the time. Now, the reason why I say not in every case is because in the case of Mr. Wilders, he's been doing this for a long time. He was out on his own. He was. I'm not going to say he's a Churchill, but he behaved like one. Okay, he saw a threat to his nation and has spent the last decade at least trying to warn the Dutch population about what was coming. And on that point, at least, at least on that score, he bears a remarkable resemblance to Churchill because Churchill did the same thing in the 30s, tried to warn the British people and the rest of the Western world about the threat of Nazism. Today in Europe, Gillers is doing the same thing. He's trying to wake not only Holland, but Europe up to the threat they face. And it seems like the harder he tries, the worse the situation gets. Now, mind you, one of the few remaining hardcore socialists left in power um, is Angela Merkel. And even in Germany, they're calling for her political head. So how long her future is going to last, I have no idea. But uh, you've seen, So in Italy, um, they've had elections or are going to have elections uh, where they're going to rewrite the Constitution. And, and there's a threat of them stepping out of a very real chance of them stepping out of the European Union. France is now talking that way. There was an article. Now, granted, it's an opinion piece, but with this whole uh, swing back towards nationalism versus globalism. And you can always tell when the writer of a story doesn't like um, this whole idea of moving away from a global village because they'll call nationalism, they'll call it populism, right? The swing towards isolationist populism. What they're really trying to say is national identity and pride in that nation. Because I've been saying for years that the only, the largest political organization the average voter can have any kind of real influence over is the one that ends at the national level. You've got the national, the provincial, and the municipal. And the lower you get, the more influence your vote has. So you can imagine if we all surrendered our sovereignty to the United Nations, how much influence your vote would actually have. 36 million votes against 315 million to the south of us, or 2 billion in China, or 1.1 billion in, in India. How much is our 36 million votes worth? Even if every single Canadian voted the same way. This is why this whole idea of the socialist utopian one-world government is utter nonsense. It can't work. It won't work. Well, it will if you're a socialist and you're sitting on the top of the heap, you know, feeding off the effort of everybody below you. A lot of people will blame 
you know, they'll blame capitalists for this. They'll blame, um, they'll blame industrialists for this. You know, they'll blame big pharma or they'll blame – I heard one of the conversations today about legalizing marijuana was how terrible – uh, some of uh, the big pharma organizations are, and you you fit in whatever name you want, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, doesn't matter. They all hate them because they're they're big pharma, and they only care about feeding you more and more drugs and killing you off, and you know this whole nonsense. And yet, there's I I wish I could I wish this is one clip I wish I could play because you could apply this to several industries. There is a video on my Facebook wall you need to go and watch. And what it is, it's called Hydrocarbon Man. Or look it up on YouTube. Because what they do is they take a, an average-looking guy sitting down to watch a football game. And he puts on, it starts out by him putting something on the stove to warm, turns the gas on. And as he walks away from it, the gas goes out. Then he sits down in his easy chair with his pet. And he goes to change the channel. And as he reaches for the remote, it disappears just vanishes. Then his eyeglasses vanish and his watch disappear. Then his TV disappears. In other words, everything made from petroleum just vanishes. And he's left standing in his underwear on his front porch with nothing but a brass doorknob in his hand and the frame, the wooden frame of his house. Even that, if they wanted to carry it to extreme, wouldn't be there because it took petroleum products to get the wood to the construction site. So he'd be left with nothing, nothing at all, not even the hole in the ground, because guess what dug that? And you can apply that to companies like these, these big pharma. Now, in my case, in my own personal case, I'll share with you a little bit of personal information. I have a sister, the youngest of the – there were four kids in my family. Um, I had three sisters, and they had one very abused brother, um, and they beat on the poor kid regularly and never felt sorry for him for a minute. And he grew up and turned into me. Anyway, um, the youngest, second youngest one was involved when she was 24 in a car accident and suffered a closed head injury. Now, in order to make her life possible, never mind livable, just possible, she requires some medication in order to control things like seizures, to control her fixation on... Like if she sees something on the floor, she there's a there's a, a term for it, and I can't think of it at the moment. My wife would know what it is, but um, she just gets fixated. Like if she sees a scrap of paper on the floor, she's really wobbly, so you don't want her bending over uh, to pick things up because she can and has fallen over. And you know, in one case, she kind of got a bump on the head, and we said, "Okay, that's it. You're not doing that anymore." And we have to be after her all the time. Um, you know, if she starts to bend over to, no, Jackie, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and you keep after her until she finally gives up on it, then you have to, then you have to do it, remove it, because the moment you turn your back, she's after it again, okay? Now, that's just the way she is, and it's not her fault, but the only way we can control that and and make it possible for her to stay within our home, we, we look after her at home, she would have to be institutionalized. And think about what that would cost if we didn't have Big Pharma to provide the drugs necessary to make her life even mildly livable. So these people who think that, you know, Big Pharma is evil and Big Pharma is this and Big Pharma is that. Look, I'm not going to say that every company executive is as pure as the wind-driven snow. But I think they get a bum rap a lot of times. 
Think about this. I was listening to Dr. Barry Dworkin uh, today talk about how they treat heart attacks and what they can do for you if you happen to suffer the misfortune of having a heart attack like Alan Thicke did today, 69-year-old Canadian actor, playing hockey with his son, heart attack, gone. Now, he was explaining that they have different drugs and different, excuse me, different drugs and different uh, techniques that have been developed by the research that big pharma involves in. They have drugs, um, clot buster, clot buster drugs that they, the uh, paramedics can administer on your way to the hospital and who knows how many lives they've saved just by being able to, while you're in the hospital, give you a shot or, you know, an injection of some kind that'll thin your blood where the clot is and keep you from dying before you even get to the hospital. And then when you get to the hospital, they have more drugs available to keep your heart alive um, so that you don't die. And all of this is, is possible because we have big pharma. Now, I'm not trying to say, like I said, I'm not saying they're all pure as the wind-driven snow. They're profit-driven. And what people don't understand is companies get into business. None of them start out as multinationals, first of all. Secondly, they do it not to, not to make medicine, in this case, or to make motorcycles, or to make cars, or to make airplanes, or to make cough drops, or to make leather gloves. They do it to make money. That's the whole reason they get into business in the first place. And what people don't understand is that the the reason that the what they offer is how they make money. So when you have a um, a drug company that makes a, a clot busting drug, you know, okay, they're using that. That's a benefit to society because of the lives it saves, and they make money on that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And it just drives me crazy when I listen to it. Anyway, time to take another break. When we come back, I'll have more for you right after this. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com.
I think it's time for a little bit of good news, a, a good news piece. This is from ABC News, I think. It's an American story, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. Let me just cue this up here. Um, you can find it on YouTube, too. That's where I found it. Um, the heading is, The Soldier's Active Humanity was caught on tape right in the middle of combat. And I watched it, and I thought, you know what? That is quite a story, so let me just re-cue that. Okay. All right. Let me bring that mic up. Okay, this runs about three minutes, and I think the story tells itself. The one without a helmet while bullets flew all around. So everybody was taking fire. The, the whole valley was just a giant ambush. It was crazy. Sergeant Kevin Durst of the California National Guard was crew chief of a medevac helicopter which flew into that Afghan valley more than four years ago. Both he and the pilot recorded the battle with cameras attached to their helmets, producing this dramatic video, which only now is coming to light. Durst first spotted Swenson from the air. We saw him because he, he laid down with a panel marker. It's a bright orange panel. Uh, he was laying on his back and it was on his chest so we could see him. That panel also made him an easier target for the enemy shooting down from three sides. Sergeant First Class Kenneth Westbrook had been hit in the throat and was bleeding to death. Swenson and a medic helped Westbrook to the helicopter. Then, amid the hell of combat, something beautiful happened. Sergeant Westbrook kind of leaned down and Captain Swenson kind of leaned down and they had, they kind of looked at each other and it appeared that they were talking, but Captain Swenson kissed him on the forehead and then tapped the side of his head. Stop the action and you can see it clearly. It was the Brotherhood. It was your buddy is getting put onto a medevac helicopter and, and you're going to have to wait to see him for a couple hours. He's going to go back to the hospital and when you're done with your battle, then you'll see him. But Swenson never saw Westbrook again. The medevac got him to a field hospital in time for a life-saving transfusion. But 29 days later, he died of complications. This guy had four broken ribs, a punctured lung, a shattered left shoulder, he had a shot um, on his neck, which um, went through his aorta, so he was bleeding pretty heavily. His widow, Charlene Westbrook, did not see this video of her husband's final battle, did not even know it existed until the medevac crew presented it to her this spring. <sighs> the first time I watched it, it was so emotional, and I, I just, I cried. was the hardest thing to watch. After loading Westbrook aboard the medevac, Swenson went back into the battle. When Durst and his medevac team returned to pick up more casualties, they found Swenson further up the valley, even more exposed to enemy fire, aiding wounded Afghan soldiers and searching for four missing Americans. He did things that nobody else would ever do, and he did it for his guys and for everybody on the ground to get them out. Durst's medevac left before Swenson performed his final act of courage, going forward under fire to recover the bodies of those four missing Americans. The Army's official account makes no mention of the kiss Swenson gave his doomed sergeant, 
But that one act explains everything about why soldiers fight. They fight for each other. David Martin, CBS News, the Pentagon. Now, if that doesn't warm the cockles of your heart, I don't know what will. You know something? I think a lot of times we think, we we end up thinking that people, well, we we talk a lot about the negative stuff, the bad stuff. You know, all these rotten politicians, all these evil people who want to do nasty things. And we forget about the everyday guys like this fella, you know. Now, he's American, and, you know, it's, it's an American story. But don't doubt for a second that people like that walk among uh, walk among us here in Canada, too. There's just the, the good people in life don't often get the attention they deserve. They certainly don't get um, the credit they deserve, mostly because they don't want it. They do it because not not out of a self promotion promoting kind of thing they do it just because it's the right thing to do they're very decent and honest human beings and when i hear stories like this you know regardless of the nationality it reminds me that as much as there's a there's a lot of really bad people in the world there's a lot of really good ones too and we should never forget that maybe it's the christmas season i don't know I mean, I certainly hope that's the case, that it'd be nice. You know that saying we have every year, well, let's try to make Christmas last all year. Well, first of all, if it did, it wouldn't mean anything. It's like that old saying, if all of us are special, then none of us are. The reason Christmas is special is because it only happens once a year. Now, in cases like this, what makes this story remarkable is the fact that we don't hear about it all the time, even though I have no doubt that things like this have happened in every conflict and sometimes it doesn't have to be in the face of, you know, enemy fire. It doesn't have to happen on the battlefield. Sometimes it happens in everyday life. A neighbor goes rushing into a building to save another neighbor from a from a fire. Um, sometimes people will just reach out in somebody else's time of need. Um, somebody passes away. There's stories of farmers having heart attacks and uh, or, you know, some kind of medical emergency during the height of crop season. Uh, taken off, uh, taken off the crops, so the whole community gets together and does it for him to make sure he doesn't suffer financially while he's suffering physically. There is a very strong current that runs through people that separates us from animals, and that is our sense of right and wrong, and our sense of um, when somebody else is down, if you can lend a hand and do so. The Good Samaritan m- mentality. You know, it's harder to find these days because there is so much evil in the world. But if you look, it's still there. There's still some very, very good people. And it's it's unfortunate that we don't pay more attention to them. You know, everybody from Denzel Washington on one hand who has the courage to stand up to the press and even in a smiling, joking way tell them they're all, you know, the practitioners of, um, of spreading um, crap around as if it was real. And they care more about deadlines than they do about the truth. To guys like this who, he didn't go, it never mentions whether he got a medal. He should have. If he didn't, it's a a travesty. But they didn't even talk to him. You know, the guy involved who did the, who had this heroic deed. There was um, a story a little while ago, not on the same caliber or scale by any means, 
but just another example of somebody being a decent human being. There was a guy out west who was uh, in Montana or some western state, was on his horse and had rode into a fast food restaurant or something to grab something to eat, and somebody had their purse snatched, and this guy was a real cowboy. I mean, a bona fide real cowboy, like the chaps and the and the lasso and the horse and, you know, the whole thing. So as the guy rode by, he grabbed his lasso and he lassoed the guy and held him till the cop showed up because he had stolen him some, the guy that he lassoed had stolen a purse. And when they were asking him about it, said, why'd you do it? He said, well, the lady needed help. And then he got on his horse and rode away. Didn't ask for anything, Wasn't didn't consider himself a hero. He was just a basic human being, somebody that saw a need and filled it because it was the right thing to do. And I think one of the great travesties in our society is that while there are still those people out there, there are a lot of uh, people out there who just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't lift a finger to help. Uh, it's in, in other words, it's in decline, but I think that part of the way that we can try to turn it around a little bit at least is that by showing examples and talking about uh, people like this this gentleman in this last story who went above and beyond putting his own life at risk to help his buddies. And maybe in even lesser ways, you know, the cowboy roping the bad guy. You know, sounds like right out of a Western. But that's just was the right thing to do where we need to instill in our kids and relearn the lessons for ourselves. Doing the right thing to do is never wrong, no matter what the law of the land is. The trick is knowing what that right thing is. And that comes from well-grounded uh, and, you know, somebody who's mature and can understand the, the circumstances and make the right call at a moment's notice and not worry about whatever consequences flow from that. Like if you see, you know, um, somebody attacking a child, you don't need the law to tell you that's wrong. You just step in and do what you can to stop it. You know, if you see uh, a woman being attacked or beaten, well, you don't need a law to tell you that's wrong. You just step in to do what you can to stop it. You know, if somebody's uh, trapped in a car, rolled over in the ditch, and you can do something to help, then you stop your car, you get out, and you do it. So you can create whatever scenario you want. But I think that what matters is that people need to understand that or need to be reminded, relearn the lesson of the Good Samaritan. I know that sounds like a horribly Christian thing to say. But take that out of its religious context and just think about it from a point of view of, a, of humanity. How much better off would we all be if we spent one-tenth the amount of time caring about our fellow man as we do caring about ourselves? It is getting to Christmas after all. So maybe during this Christmas season we can spend some time thinking about that, about what it is to be human, what it is to... You know, what kind of life do you want Do you want to live? What kind of example do you want to leave for your kids? It's one thing to tell them about right and wrong. It's a complete other to show them. I'll take a break and be back with more right after this.
often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. these days you're going to have to play the whole song. I really like that piece. All right. I got a question for a certain segment of the audience. Hey, teenagers, are you tired of your stupid-ass parents? Act now. Move out. Get a job. Pay bills. Do it while you still know everything. <laughs> oh, man, is that true? You know, it's funny how, how um, when you're young, I know when, when my dad, when I was about the age of 14, I noticed one day how stupid my dad was. And everything he did, none of it made sense. And I always had the answers. I knew how to do everything. And that carried on from 14 right through the time I joined the Navy. He got dumber every year. I got smarter every year. And just we fought like cats and dogs. I mean, it was embarrassing. When I look back on it now, I just kind of shake my head. But I just couldn't get over how he just didn't get it. He just didn't understand. You know, if only he would do things the way I thought they should be done, everything would be so much easier. I mean, isn't every 15 or 16-year-old smarter than his dad? Now, of course, there was a time when all of that suddenly flipped over on its head. I went off and I joined the Navy and I went through basic training. And when I came back on my first leave... I was stunned. I couldn't get over 
how much in the 11 or 12 weeks that I was gone, he'd grown up, he changed. All of a sudden, everything he knew, you know, all the things that I thought, uh, he just, all of a sudden, he, he got things right. He understood them. He did them the correct way. And just where we couldn't work together before, we worked together like an oiled machine. And I pointed that out to him. I said, Dad, you, you have no idea how much you've changed since I've been gone. I mean, it's amazing. I left and you didn't know anything. All of a sudden, it's now like you never get it wrong. And he looked at me and he grinned and he laughed and he said, you think I'm the one that's changed, huh? <laughs> and I had one of those, oh, oh, <laughs> one of those epiphanies. When you get, when all of a sudden you realize there's more people on the planet than just you and the world doesn't revolve around you and all that stuff, I realized it wasn't him that changed, of course, it was me. I grew up and all of a sudden everything my dad was trying to tell me over those five or six years when I was being just a jerk, all of a sudden made sense. And you know what? He, he without a doubt, was one of the hardest working, smartest men I've ever I've ever had the privilege to be around. I still miss him to this day. He passed away in 1983 at 45 years old. There were a lot of reasons. Um, he had he had health problems. Uh, he died of a of an of an aneurysm, but he had a bad heart and just his diet was what what killed him. The diet and the stress. I won't give you my my family's whole medical history, but he was um, without a doubt the hardest working man I'd ever worked for uh, or tried to keep up to. I mean, God, the guy could work, but. He was, when I look back over my life, I try to draw examples from him to live by. And not all of them, believe it or not, not every single one of them uh, do I try to emulate him. One of the biggest, I think the mistake, one of the few mistakes I think he made when I was growing up was he never allowed me, during that time when I was fighting with him tooth and nail, part of it was me just trying to make my own way. And he wouldn't give me the time to stand back and let me make the mistake and get frustrated to the point where I would ask him for help. And I took that example and I used it uh, and turned it into something that I, I like to think was good. And the example I often cite at times like this was when my second oldest boy, Jordan, was still at home when he was, I think, 15 or 16. I was teaching him how to back up a small eight-foot trailer uh, with the tractor. Now, if you've ever tried to back up a trailer, you'll know that the shorter the trailer, the harder it is. And there's an old saying I learned when I was a truck driver. A little too mu a little too soon is better than a lot too late. Which means, of course, translated to English, that means if you wait till you see the wagon, you know, respond, then you're already too late. You have to be ahead of it. You have to start putting input into the steering wheel to correct where this thing is going to go before it actually really begins to move. And I let him take that tractor. He had to back it down a laneway. I think the whole distance was like 40 feet. I just wanted him to back it out into the pasture, turn it around, bring down the little logs on the trailer, drop it off so we could peel the bark off. He had a bunch of cedar logs on it. So I'm sitting there with my niece Marie, and we're peeling the logs we already have, and I can hear him. And he backs the tractor up, and the tractor stops. And it pulls ahead. He backs it up, and the tractor stops. And this goes on for like 10 or 15 minutes, and all of a sudden you hear this frustrated scream come out of the bush. He's sitting on that tractor, cursing the thing. 20 minutes later, 
he finally had it back out far enough that he was able to to uh, turn it around and bring it down to where we were working. And I didn't say anything. Well, I, I shouldn't say I didn't say anything. The one thing I did say to him, because I didn't go over and say, see how smart I am and how dumb you are? No. I just said, now you know what I meant, don't you? About a little bit too soon is better than a lot too late. Yes. But you know what? Now he knows how to back up a tractor because I let him make the mistake. I let him learn by himself how to actually get the job done. I gave him all the tools he needed, everything he he had to be to be successful. I didn't set him up for failure, but I didn't interfere, and I let him make the mistakes because I knew he could hurt anything. It was an old trailer, so even if he twisted the tongue off, who cared? You know, it wasn't that. It was I wanted him to go through the frustration and take the time it takes to learn to do it right. And if he got to a point where he was really stuck, he knew he could come and ask me. But his 16-year-old pride, there was no way he was going to come and ask me for help. Just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> no way. And I knew it too. And that's what I was laughing at. So when Maria and I watched him come down the hill on the tractor, we just looked at each other and laughed. And you know, it's I'm no... I'm not the world's greatest parent. I've made far more than my mistakes, my share of mistakes with with our kids. But fortunately, they've been resilient enough to live through them, and we've been blessed with eight wonderful children. And I tell you, uh, being a parent, there's nothing like it. And how I ended up here at this point in my show talking about being a parent, it's something I don't think people give enough credit to. I know my daughter, my oldest, my oldest is now the mother of two, and she is having a ball. She loves being a mom. She just comes alive, uh, and she's got far more patience with her two-year-old than I ever had with my first two-year-old. I'll tell you what, that kid drives you crazy. But she's just thriving as a mother and just glad to see it because that's a, that's a role, that's a job that never gets enough credit. You know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. Well, that wraps it up for me tonight. I certainly hope you'll join me again next Wednesday night. We'll have more fun, frivolity, and information for you then. In the meantime, we'll be caritas et amor. Deus, EBS. Good evening, God bless, and don't let anything... <laughs> Good evening, God bless, and don't let anything disturb your peace. Of all the money that e'er I had I spent it in good company and all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done For want of wit To memory now I can't so fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I had 
They're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay But since it fell into my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll change 